Today we're starting a new series through the book of Ecclesiastes. This will be a, about 11 weeks. And um, if you're new to us, Central Baptist, we believe that preaching should be, in its regular diet, sequential and exegetical, meaning we go through books of the Bible, and then we look at it in detail. Uh, the goal with expositional preaching is to help you know your Bible better, so you know if a passage has been exposed well, if you read it before you hear it preached, and then you, you read it after again, and you realize, I understand it better. That's, that's the goal. My goal is that you would understand at the end of the series, you would understand the book of Ecclesiastes well, and that you would be able to see Christ and his gospel in it. Today's text is Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A child wants to watch TV, but his parents say no. A mom desires to have a clean home, but she's exhausted from cleaning the same kitchen five times a day. A wealthy man can afford pretty much anything he wants, and yet he feels empty and dissatisfied. A woman longs to live a normal life, but her illness drains her of all her energy. A husband and a wife want peace, but they can barely communicate with one another without fighting. What do all these people have in common? They all have experienced the message of Ecclesiastes. They know the meaning of vanity, or perhaps Better put, they know the meaninglessness of vanity. And you and I do too. Today we start an 11-week series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and what an important message this book has for us today. Ecclesiastes is important for us who are believers because we live in a world of tension. We, we live in a world of frustration. But we are promised by faith a world of bliss. Ecclesiastes is important for us as believers because we live in this already and not yet time in redemption. Christ is Lord. He already rose victoriously from the grave. But we know the brokenness that lingers in the world, don't we? So we, believers, need the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is important for you who is not a believer. 
Because you know the vanity and the meaninglessness of life. You know the injustice. You know the frustration. You know the futility of life. But from an existentialist perspective, and we'll talk more about what that means later in the series, you don't have the tools you need to deal with the meaninglessness of life properly. But Ecclesiastes can help you with that. You may have walked into this place today without answers for life's greatest questions. You may have come here to be courteous to an invitation, perhaps out of tradition, perhaps because you made a New Year's resolution to add some religion to your life. And yet, the purpose, the goal of life is completely obscure to you. So, you need the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a part of a genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. This is the last main genre in the Bible that I have not yet preached through, uh, to you through an entire book. This is a genre prim primarily associated with the office of the king of Israel, with one exception. The books of the Bible that, are, that, are, that fall under this category are Job. That's our exception, right? Job was not a king. Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. These books were designed not so much to develop, to develop doctrine, although they do develop doctrine. They were designed to impart wisdom as we live our lives. So these are very practical books, as we're going to see in Ecclesiastes. The message is plain and easy to understand. It is puzzling. It is, in a way, an enigma. But you can understand exactly what the preacher says. These books don't just tell us what the Christian faith is, but how the Christian faith should be, should be lived. Ecclesiastes might be one of the most puzzling books in the Bible. The message just seems so void of hope. As Indy was asking me how I was going to structure my sermon and begin my sermon this week, I explained to her and she said, that sounds very void of hope. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you see why. But Ecclesiastes is not a book that is void of hope. It just calls you to work hard to find hope. We hear in Ecclesiastes that it is all vanity. Sure, we know that there is much vanity in the world, don't we? But should we say all is vanity? This seems to be the conclusion that author Herman Melville comes to in the novel Moby Dick. 
He says, the truest of all men was the man of sorrows. That's Jesus. And the truest of all books is Solomon's. And Ecclesiastes is the, is the fine hammered steel of wool. Wow. But listen to how differently evangelist Campbell Morgan views Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is an inspired confession of failure and pessimism. When God is excluded, when man lives under the sun and forgets the larger parts, right? So there's an aspect of Ecclesiastes that, that obscures something, that causes us to forget something. What is a larger part which is always over the sun? The eternal and abiding things. Explicitly, Ecclesiastes teaches us that there is nothing new under the sun. And this is bad news. But implicitly, Ecclesiastes also teaches us that there is nothing new over the sun. There is a God who never changes. And this is good news. I want you to see today that in an unexpected way, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes paints a very clear picture of the gospel. Because as it depicts a world of meaninglessness, it sets our hearts in a pursuit of meaning that can only be found in Christ. And in the eternal life that he affords. So here's my main point for today. In a world of vanity and meaninglessness, only Christ can move us from hopelessness to hopefulness. In this series, like in the series of Judges, we, we went through over the summer... We are really going to observe longer portions of Scripture. But today's sermon is a short passage. My goal is to preach this message exegetically. But also in this sermon, I want to set a foundation for the next 11 weeks. So the sermon will be a little more technical. We're going to talk a little bit about languages. We're going to talk about genre. We're going to talk about a few things and what I really want you to do is I want you to hold on to these things. And I want you to carry these things with you as we study this book together. So I have three points today. And they're all just questions that I'm asking the text. That I'm asking out of the text. So these are questions of observation. So here are my three points. First, who is the preacher? Second, what is vanity? And third, what does under the sun mean? So first, who is the preacher? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? In your mind, this may be a very simple question. In the minds of most biblical scholars, this is a very difficult question to answer. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher. That's the simple answer. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? 
the preacher. Preacher wrote it. Traditionally, the authorship of Ecclesiastes has been attributed to King Solomon. And I think there are good arguments for a Solomonic uh, authorship. Look at verse 1 again. Who is the preacher? The son of David, king in Jerusalem. More specifically, look down at verse 12. Okay, so you may want to have your Bible open in front of you. Look at verse 12. There's a little bit more of a description of the preacher there. The preacher, who is the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is also king of Israel. Okay, so this seems to fit Solomon really well. Israel here refers to the whole nation. And if you know the history of Israel, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And this is a kingdom in Jerusalem, southern, and he's king over Israel. All right. So there are only two, right? There are only two kings who fit this category, David and Solomon. Since David can't be his own, his own son, then Solomon seems to fit this description really well. All right, do you see that? Do you see how good and strong an argument that is? Uh, so I think, I think that's a good argument, okay? But I actually, I'm not convinced by it, okay? I actually think that the evidence against Solomon being the author of this book is also strong. First, Solomon's name is never mentioned in Ecclesiastes or anywhere in the Bible in association with Ecclesiastes. Now, Solomon would give a lot of credence to this book if his name was associated with it, and yet his name is not there. The message of Ecclesiastes seems to depict a time in Israel where Israel was struggling, suffering, going through hardship. But the time of Solomon was the time of greatest prosperity in the land. So do you see how there's a little bit of a tension here, even in Solomon fitting in this, uh, in this role. Second, look at verse 12 again. The King, the King James translates this verse better than the ESV does. The King James says that he was king in Jerusalem. The preacher was king in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, okay? Uh, the verb here is a, denotes a complete action in the past. So he was king, and the verb demands us to understand that to mean he no longer is, okay? So that's complicated because the Bible tells us that Solomon reigned over Jerusalem for 40 years, and then he died. So the Bible never gives us a time frame for Solomon to have been king over Jerusalem and still be alive. Okay, so, so that's, that's complicated uh, to, to, uh, to, to uh, understand Solomon as, as the king here, as the preacher here. The reference to son of David is a reference that could apply to any of the sons of David. Other kings in the Bible are referred to as the son of David because they're the offspring of David. And most famously, we know that Jesus is the son of David. So son of David could refer here to one who is of the lineage of David. And the Bible also, at other times, refers to the totality of divided Israel as Israel. So the arguments for Solomon are strong, 
but they're not definitive, okay? So it could go either way. The internal evidence is not clear one way or another. So here is my solution. I will refer to the author of this book as the preacher. I think that this is what the Bible demands of me. Whether it's Solomon or not, at the end of the day, does not implicate the meaning of the text. Okay? Uh, but we know that the message, the message comes from someone, a king, king over Jerusalem, that calls himself the preacher. The preacher comes from the Hebrew word Kohelet. The Latin and Greek versions of the Bible translated Kohelet as Ecclesiastes. So this is where we get the English title of the book. Kohelet is one who gathers people in order to teach them. Very similar to what is happening here. A Kohelet is a preacher of wisdom who gathers people people so that he can impart his wisdom to others. So this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is a sermon by the preacher who preaches in order to impart wisdom to the hearts of those who assemble to listen to him. It's important for us to know who the preacher is, however, not necessarily his direct identity, but we need to know a, a few things about him because this book is very personal. The message is by no means disconnected from the messenger. Is the preacher a believer or is he a skeptic? Is he just teaching because he is a teacher? Or is he sharing his personal testimony? Is he sharing his personal experiences? Most of this book is in first, is in first person. Save the introduction and the epilogue at the end. This book is an invitation for us to observe and receive personally the message of the preacher. And what is the message of the preacher? So let's move on to our second point. What is vanity? Look at verse 2. Here's the message of the preacher. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I mean, the message couldn't be clearer. The word vanity appears five times in this verse alone and 29 times in this entire book. This is an incredible amount of repetition. For the preacher, all is vanity and he wants you to know that. In Hebrew literature, especially in poetry, this book is not all poetry, but but significant portion of it is repetition denotes purpose. So, verse 2 
is the equivalence of a thesis statement in a paper that you might have written in high school or in college. What is your thesis, right? Did you ever receive a paperback saying your thesis is not clear? The preacher would never receive his paperback because if there is one thing that is clear in this book is his thesis. The preacher is about to preach and he wants the listener to know in his, that his sermon is about the vanity of life. But what does the word vanity mean? The answer to this question has puzzled students of the Bible for millennia. The Hebrew word here is Havel. And Havel is mist. Havel is vapor, breath. That's here, right now, and then gone. The idea of Havel is something you can see. But when you try to grasp it, it becomes elusive. Havel is something that is physically there and not there at the same time. The ESV, along with other versions that rely heavily on the King James translation, render the word Vanity for Havel. I don't love this translation, not because it's inaccurate. I actually think it's accurate. But the problem is that English speakers hear the word vanity and they think about people who care about appearances. They care about the external. The, the word vanity makes us think of materialism. And this is not what Havel means. So we're going to stick with the word vanity. But you're going to have to empty your mind of the English definition of the word. Okay? Other modern English versions of the Bible translate Havel as meaningless. The NIV does that. Futile. Pointless. Useless. Without purpose. I think these are all, in a sense, adequate and inadequate at the same time. When I think of Habel, I think of something that is both elusive and frustrating. It is both elusive and frustrating. When I think of Habel, I think of the dog. I think of the greyhound on a racetrack chasing after a fake bunny that he will never catch. And even if he caught it, he would realize it's fake. That's Havel. That's vanity. That's meaninglessness. These are the patterns of life that we experience, that we say it is both elusive and frustrating. We know Havel. The rich and the poor know it. The healthy and the sick know it. The disciplined and the lazy know it. The extrovert and the introvert know it. We all experience Havel. Havel 
reveals that dissatisfaction that is alive and well in our hearts. Dissatisfaction is a byproduct of purposelessness. So as we study Ecclesiastes, we hope, my hope, is that you will identify areas of Havel in your own heart, in your own life, and that you will and, and that you turn your dissatisfied heart into a heart that is fully satisfied in Christ. Not because of situational changes, but because nothing in the life of a believer happens without purpose. So we may experience Havel, but... The puzzling thing is that we are actually not experiencing Havel if we're Christians. When Israel was finding it, found itself in its most apparently purposeless experience in Babylonian captivity, God says to Israel, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Often people say that these promises don't apply to New Covenant believers. Oh, but it does. In Christ, every promise of God is yes and amen. God's plan for you and I is for us to have a future and hope. Paul says something very similar. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, right? So Ecclesiastes says, all is vanity. Paul is speaking out the same word here, all things. All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's the same thing. Ecclesiastes is often labeled as a very depressing book, and in a sense, it is. Although there are glimpses of joy in Ecclesiastes. But I think Ecclesiastes is better described as realistic. Ecclesiastes rejects the mantra that ignorance is bliss. Sometimes we need to stare hard at the demons that hunt us in order for us to prepare adequately for the battle. There's more I need to say about this, but we have a whole series to address this issue. But I want you to take a minute and consider an important question here. This preacher who preaches this message of vanity, who preaches the message that all is vanity, is he just teaching truths? Is he just lecturing a classroom? Or is he really sharing that which he has experienced? And I think the answer is clear. I think the answer is both. I think this teacher wants to teach us something. But he wants to teach us something that he has experienced. Ecclesiastes is certainly a book of wisdom, but Ecclesiastes is also an experiential book. It's a book that we don't just say this is good and right. It's a book that we read and we say, and we've experienced this. We know what he means. Just scan through the pages of the Bible 
And see how often the preacher says things like, I said in my heart, I became great. I hated all my toils. I, I, I. This is a man who is acquainted with life and the reality of life. And this is important. Why? Because the deepest kind of teaching is one that is filled with wisdom and experience. You know, when I'm talking to people and people are sharing an experience, especially a hardship that I have not experienced, I've stopped saying, I understand you. I don't say that because there is mental knowledge and there is experiential knowledge. And I don't want to give anybody the impression that I have experiential knowledge in something that I don't. What I say is, I can imagine. I can imagine what you're going through. I can imagine your, what you are experiencing. Oh, but how sweet it is when we are struggling and we find someone who is able to give us a message of hope, but at the same time identifies with the struggle that we go through, right? And this is what Ecclesiastes affords us. What becomes challenging, however, in the book is that the preacher seems to be really struggling with his emotions in this book. Perhaps it could be said that the preacher seems to be nearing a point of complete despair. We would say that the preacher is perhaps, right, in modern language, struggling with deep depression. Vanity is his conclusion for all the matters of life. The struggle is so great that some commentators even suggest that the preacher is not a believer. Could it be? No, I don't think so. I don't think God used unholy men to write his holy word. Okay, Which then leads us to say the preacher is a believer. But he's really struggling. He's really struggling. Such position of denying that the preacher is a believer fails to understand the reality of life even when you're trusting Christ. Believers struggle with their emotions. Faith, friends, is strongest, it has its strongest foundation when it is tested by fire. So sometimes God allows us to go through the valley. And the valley could be the valley of darkness and death. Our Christianity has to be realistic. Sometimes we struggle. And sometimes we struggle deeply. Sometimes we struggle significantly. Sometimes we struggle to a place of near despair. Listen to the struggles of faithful men in the Bible. Job chapter 3 verses 2 and 3. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. David, Psalm 88, verses 1 through 3. 
O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. And here's our Lord Jesus Christ. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Why such agony? Because even the faithful experiences vanity. Even the faithful experience experiences havel. So the message of Ecclesiastes is that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be honest with our struggles. It's not unchristian to struggle with our emotions. It is not unchristian to struggle with our faith. It is not unchristian to struggle with brokenness, injustice, the futility of life, vanity, the havel of this world. According to Ecclesiastes, Christians don't have it all together. But they know where to run for help. Christianity is not a religion for the moral superior, but a religion of faith. So in Christianity, the broken, the struggling, the oppressed, the sinful, the outcast are all welcomed. So if you're struggling with your emotions deeply, if your heart is greatly dissatisfied, if your faith is frail, if you're struggling with the indwelling pollution of sin, and you are asking the question, can I still be a Christian? The answer the preacher gives you is yes. Even Christians struggle with Habel. But there's one more question that I want to ask of the, class, the text today. What does under the sun mean? Because this question is going to help us know what to do with Habel. Havel does not deny the reality of the physical world. But it reminds us that the pursuit of purpose through the natural word is futile. Look at verse 3. There's a phrase that is going to come back often, very often in this book. The preacher says, What does, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Did you hear that? Under the sun. What is, what does under the sun mean? Under the sun is not ultimately a physical realm, but a spiritual realm. Under the sun refers to the realm that is ruled by vanity. The Bible often refers to this place as the world. Listen to how the Bible describes the world or the realm under the sun. Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, you hear that world, or what shall men give in return for his soul? Rhetorical question. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to, under the sun, to the world, 
But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know the friendship with what is under the sun? The world is enmity, enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then just two verses later. Notice how this verse really draws a close association with what is under the sun. Okay? And the world is passing away. Do you see that? This is why under the sun is futile. Because it's passing away. It's not eternal. So when we live for the world, we are accruing things that are going to vanish. So they don't satisfy. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, that's eternity. Will, the will of God abides forever. The world is a place we seek to avoid, but we can't completely avoid it, can we? We live in it, but we must not become of it. We must not draw our lives from the world. We must not buy into the vanity of the world. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, is journeying to the celestial city. And on his way, he finds many distractions. One of the distractions he finds is a city called Vanity Fair. Listen to how the book describes the city of vanity. Vanity Fair is the city of destruction. You see, it has an end. The world, dressed in its best party dress. It is a place where the most seductive attractions of the world take center stage in an attempt to steal our gaze. Ha! Huh. Steal our gaze, cool our resolve, and shake our confidence, which is to be in God, who is the maker and builder of the unseen city. And friends... This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Vanity fair is the futility of life. Vanity fair is life without God. Vanity fair is the material life without eternity. But we must not be distracted by the vanity of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. That's under the sun. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's over the sun. For this light momentary affliction... Under the sun is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison over the sun. As we look not to the things that are seen under the sun, but to the things that are unseen over the sun. For the things that are seen are transient under the sun, but the things that are unseen are eternal over the sun. You know, as I have been meditating on the message of Ecclesiastes for the past several weeks, I've come to realize that this book... There's something that is lacking in it. It's not completely missing, but it's highly underemphasized. Ecclesiastes very seldomly mentions eternity or points our gaze towards it. And if there is no eternity, then indeed, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes is a puzzling book. Perhaps that's the best word for Havel, puzzling. A commentator translates Havel as enigma. 
Ecclesiastes is a book that leaves you thinking. There's something missing. There has to be more to life. Even listen to how the preacher concludes the book. And notice how this conclusion feels lacking. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all, the, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And if you're a Christian, your heart should be screaming, this is not all. This is not the totality of things. This is not the conclusion of the Christian life. Sure, duty is part of being a Christian. But what about delight? What about joy? So here is the genius of this book. In concealing joy and eternity, Ecclesiastes causes us to long for it. Ecclesiastes is an enigma. I like how Bobby Jamerson, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., puts it. He says, Ecclesiastes is a question, or is the question, to which Christ is the answer. Yes, this is true. Ecclesiastes is an enigma. Ecclesiastes is a question. And if you read Ecclesiastes and you leave out Christ, you will find yourself lost, without answers, without hope. But if you read Ecclesiastes and you find Christ in it, Ecclesiastes will encourage you even in the darkest times of your life. Why? Because apart from Christ, there is no eternal life. But with Christ, eternal life is not just possible, it is assured. So even in our greatest, deepest struggles, we know that one day, we will be with the Lord. Why? What is true of the book of Ecclesiastes is true of you. In Ecclesiastes, everything apart from Christ is vanity. And so, your life apart from Christ is pure vanity. Christ, the eternal Son of God, entered into this world of vanity. Christ, who from over the sun created all things under the sun, took on flesh and dwelled under the sun in his own creation. He experienced the futility, the brokenness of life, and yet he never sinned. So Christ himself overcame vanity, and yet he died. Death is the ultimate experience of vanity. Death is the ultimate havel. And Christ tasted havel in its most intense form. So that you and I wouldn't need to experience havel. We experience havel because we deserve it. Our sin, our sin makes this world frustrating. Our sin makes havel our natural experience. This world is a world of vanity. But Christ experienced it not because he deserved it, but because he loved you and because he loved me. Christ on the cross accomplished the most meaningful, purposeful act ever accomplished by a human being. He died paying for our sins. And 
In this act, Christ destroyed vanity. Christ destroyed Havel. Christ destroyed meaninglessness. So friend, there's one way for you to find purpose in life in one way only. You must know Christ. You must confess to him the sins that have enslaved you in a world of Havel. Sins that have imprisoned you in your life of futility. And trust in his sacrifice for the salvation of your soul. This is the invitation that I'm extending to you today. This is the invitation that the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes makes to you today. Will you receive Christ? At this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's table.